like pizza. Maybe maybe we should just do Greeks on on Wednesday. I'm just thinking. Is everybody is that good with everybody? I'm just throwing out there. Sure. All right. So there we go. That'll preach. There you go. Chubby guys under pizza. That'll always preach, right? <laughs> All right. So we are. Side note, we are in Nehemiah. No, that's where the first note is here. We are back in Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 6 and 7. This is one of those chunks where there's a lot of Scripture. You're going to get to hear me trip and stumble over a lot of great Hebrew names. Um, Lord, forgive me for butchering the names of your people and your servants um, as we go through this. But again, we remind folks that the reason why we do that, like if we're preaching through an entire book of Scripture, we see this list of names or this list of numbers, and we we read through it. We don't skip over it because it is the Word of God, and we claim to be people of the Word of God, and we're going to read all of it. There is something there for us to learn. It may take us a while to pick apart and figure out what that is, but it is there for us. It is good for the teaching and rebuking and, and reproof and, and for all of those things to make us better people and better servants of the Word of God as well. So we're going to read through that today. So here we are, Nehemiah chapter 6 and 7. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up. Uh, If not, that's great. It's still on the screen, so you can follow along. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now, when Cymbala and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Cymbala and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hekparim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And then they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. And in the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. According to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you say has been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabal, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. Oh my God. Oops, sorry, I skipped a line here. Verse 13. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they gave 
could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophets, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished in the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehoanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Chapter 7. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came at the first, and I found it written. These are the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Ezariah, Raamiah, Nahamini, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baanah. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephthiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 652. The sons of Pehath-Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Binui, 648. The sons of Babai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adkaniam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, uh, 2067. The sons of Aden, 655. The son of Ater, namely Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashum, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Herif, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Natopha, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kiriath-Jerim, Chirphoria, and Beroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Gibba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. 
the sons of Sana'a, 3,930. The priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The uh, sons of Emer, 1,052. The sons of Peshur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely Kadmiel, the sons of Hodavah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talman, the sons of Achab, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tobooth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padan, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gear, the sons of Rahiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Basai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nefusiam, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatapha. A lot of sons. And there's still more. Here we go. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jaalal, the sons of Darkan, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pachareth Hazabiam, the sons of Ammon. All the temple servants and sons of Solomon servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Telmalah, Telharshah, Sherub, uh, Adan, Emmer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor descent whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Delilah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they would not partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the, to the treasury the, of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And the rest of the people gave 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much um, 
We thank you that we see in, in a chapter like chapter 7 that you are God of the details, that you are God of, of the little things, that you, you do remember, and we thank you for that. Father, we see that as we, we look and think about chapter 6, that you are a God who, who gives us perseverance to do the work you've called us to do. We pray, Lord, that as we go into this time of, of worship through the, through the hearing of your word, that you would speak to our hearts through your word, you would challenge us, you would convict us, draw us closer to you. Have us seek to pursue your glory above everything else. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That was a lot. I feel tired already. <laughs> but when we look at this, this is one of those, those neat kind of passages in Scripture where we see kind of a Nehemiah having a real moment here. Like he's just living life for real. Like, like if you ever had a job to complete and you've worked really, really diligently on that task and then you look back and you go, oh my gosh, I still have so much more to do. Right? This is kind of where Nehemiah is at at this time of the wall. Right? There's, there's just so much more. For Leah and I right now, this is the big task in our life has, has been kind of prepping everything in her dad's estate so that we can finalize all of that. Like we, we make big leaps and big jumps and we get all this stuff done, and then there's more to do. Right? Everything we do feels like, like this big step forward, and it is a big step forward. But there's so many more steps we have to take before we can completely finish the task. And this is, this is exactly where Nehemiah is at. The walls have been put all back together, right? There's no breach. There's no holes in the walls. Those little foxes that Chris talked about, they're not going to tear down the wall anymore like they were teasing and taunting Nehemiah about. No, these walls are steady and they're secure. But the gates need to be finished. Okay, right, we can get the gates hung. We got the timber. We got all that. Oh, wait, we get to chapter 7 and we see Jerusalem needs to be repopulated. We've got to get everything back together, right? It, we, we see all this. It's, <clears throat> the city was large, but there were very few people, and Nehemiah's work is not done. And this is important for us as believers in Christ to see, right? The, the, because as long as you and I are still physically here on earth, our work for the Lord is not done. Now, you can retire, I, you know, I'm, I'm, you can retire from a job, but your work for the Lord is not done. See, as long as we have breath of life, we are to bring God glory and proclaim the salvation He brings. That's our job. And we are to continue to do that. And what we see is in, in chapters 6 in particular, we see God giving Nehemiah perseverance through this. <clears throat> in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, he's getting perseverance to do it through direct opposition. He mentions this in verse 1, that Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the rest of his enemies. I like that. The rest of the enemies are, are seeing their chances of power and the, and the desire to grab that power kind of float away from them as the walls are getting closer and closer to being finished. The more secure the walls are, the less they can do inside Jerusalem and mess it up, right? And Nehemiah, he sees and acknowledges the progress that they've made. <clears throat> and he says it's good progress, but he also knows that there is work to complete. He's really realistic in what has to be done. 
And it's very wise of him to acknowledge the progress that's been made. But it'd be really, really foolhardy for him to celebrate yet. Right? He doesn't want to be premature in his, his celebration. You see those horrible, like heart-wrenching videos of the marathon runner who raises his hand in celebration about 20 yards too short of the actual finish line. Right? Nehemiah doesn't want to be that guy. We want to be cautious of that ourselves. Because the enemies are lying in wait. They're ready to spring a trap. And they're, they're trying to. In verse 2, they, they begin by sending these messages to Nehemiah as a way to distract him from the work. Right? They're, they're trying to entrap him. But he doesn't fall for it. Like, I'm busy. I don't have time for you guys. Send my letters back. I, I don't have time. He knows that his enemies and he knows what they want and he knows what they're capable of doing. Right? He knew they intended him harm. Like Nehemiah, we need to be really realistic about our enemies and what they intend for us. Now, what I'm talking about, I'm talking about spiritual enemies here. Often we're our own spiritual enemy if we're, if we're really honest with ourselves. And Nehemiah's pointing that out to us in some way, right? That, that we're seeing that. See, those, those things that are spiritual enemies, those are the things that entice us to sin and draw us away from God. And they are put there to do us harm. Satan wants us it wants to see us made vulnerable. He wants to see us destroyed. He wants to see us fall away from the Lord. See, now we have to understand that the work that we're doing for God is important. In verse 3 of chapter 6, he says, I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop so that I can come to you? Now, if we were to compare Nehemiah's work in Jerusalem to his work back in Persia, we need to see how much he prioritized his work for the Lord here. From, from a world's perspective, as the king's cupbearer in Persia, Nehemiah had some pull and some major influence. He would have determined who worked in the palace and who didn't. Who was allowed to come in and who wasn't. What foods and what merchants you could buy from and what merchants you couldn't. The king would have had utmost trust in Nehemiah as his cupbearer. This is the guy who, again thwarts all assassination attempts by poisoning. That's a pretty high-level position in a kingdom. Worldly, this looks like a really great and important work. But Nehemiah, think about this. Nehemiah turned it down. Like, can I, can I temporarily resign from this position, O King Artaxerxes, so that I can go to Jerusalem the city of my forefathers that has been destroyed and laid waste so that I may rebuild it for the benefit of my God. It sounds a little backwards. Let me, let me take a high-level position. Because that cupbearer's position, he could have gotten promoted into other advisory roles. No, I want to I go do this. This is... This is this work that's here, this rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, this is a great work before God. See, the walls of Jerusalem were intended to protect God's people. The completion of the walls put God's name at stake. And Nehemiah is worried about the reputation non-believers would think of their God. Well, what is God's reputation going to look like to these folks who don't believe? <clears throat> And we have to ask ourselves, what work are you doing? Right? 
What work are you doing? Do you see it as a great work? If you are working for the glory of God and for his name's sake, you are doing a great work. I love Colossians 3.17, right? And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through through him. And Paul continues that thought into verse 23 of the same chapter when he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Nehemiah is living this out, right? See, God God has called you to live out his glory by placing your trust in Jesus Christ alone, striving to seek and and live in his holiness and, and being thankful to him for what we have. And we see that here in Nehemiah. It doesn't matter what your vocation is. I I think about that. It doesn't matter what your vocation is. If you're a garbage man, be the best garbage man for Jesus you can be. That's a good work. That's what God's calling us to. If you call yourself a Christian, this is your call in life. It doesn't matter what you do. It matters who you do it for. And how you do it. Whatever work you do in life, if you're doing it with a dedication to the name of Jesus Christ, if people in your workplace know you as a Christian, people in your workplace know you as a a follower of Christ, then you're doing it to his dedication. You're doing it for his promise of eternal life. You're doing it so his kingdom can grow. And that is a great work. And there were going to be persistent things that are going to distract you from what God has called you to do. And we can look at Nehemiah's persistence to stay on task as a bit of inspiration here. Four different times, these guys sent messages to come meet him at the plain of Ono, right? And, and with Samballot. And the fifth time, then Samballot sends this open letter. And this open letter was just filled with rumors and false information about what Nehemiah and the Jews were doing. These lies seemed widely spread. Can't imagine who would have been spreading those. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the other enemies, as Nehemiah names them. So these lies were were widely spread, and then they were known throughout the neighboring countryside. And Geshem agrees with everything in the letter. Like like Sanballat's got this toady Geshem out there. Yeah, what he said, right? Kind of kind of moment, right? But Nehemiah stayed on task. He didn't waste time or energy mounting a campaign to fight the lies. There was no no moment, we've got to control the narrative. That never happened from Nehemiah. He knew this was an attempt to bully him. He knew this was an attempt to intimidate the people. He knew Sambalat and the others wanted the work to cease. And his response was simple and wonderful. No such things as as you say have been done for you're inventing them out of your own mind. He says that in 6.8, and then he continues on in prayer in 6.9. Oh God, strengthen my hands. Let me finish your job. That's all I want to do for you, God. Finish your work. And, and as I'm reading this, I'm thinking about like my own internal dialogue. Leah laughs at me. My internal dialogue often slips out. I think it was the 35 years I lived as a single man before she and I got married that the house would get quiet. And so I'm talking to myself in my head and then the voice would just, and it was just, I do, I talk to myself. 
But we all have some sort of internal dialogue, right? There's always some sort of weird conversation taking place inside of our head, right? As I read through the book of Nehemiah, I can't help but wonder how much of Nehemiah's actual internal dialogue was actually prayer. It doesn't specifically say that anywhere in Scripture, but it makes me think. Because what happens is he just seems to slip in and out of these short little prayers so seamlessly and so effortlessly, right? You look at it, 6, 8, and he says at the end of that, no such things you have said have been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. For they wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done, period. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. There's this little prayer, just, just this slides in and out of that so effortlessly, as if there's always three people in his conversations and the third person is always God. And, and as I wonder about that, I, I see what we could mistake for me and Maya being a very strong and confident person as him really being truly confident in God's strength, not his own. Don't, don't conflate that. Don't mess those two up. Yes, Nehemiah looks confident. Nehemiah looks strong. He's confident in the Lord's strength, not of his own. Then I think about this, man, what, what if you and I did this? What if you really, really did this? What if, what if we had this internal dialogue in our minds that was always going, that little, little conversation that happened in our head all day long, and how much if that if we turned it into prayer? Turned it really much more into prayer than it really is right now. What if we lived in a manner where every conversation that we had was always had between at least three people and one of those people always being God? See, I I think Nehemiah is living out what we see Paul later teaching us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 and 18, where he says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do for one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Nehemiah is the governor. He could repay Tobias and Balat and Geshem and the other enemies evil for evil. He chooses not to do that. We've already read where, where he was seeking the good of everyone in chapter, chapter 5. And all these little just slides in and out of prayer. And how many times he's just thanking God for the work getting done and acknowledging it. I really see that Nehemiah is maybe an example that Paul grabbed when he says this. I don't know. It's a book of speculations, maybe. I'm I'm just, but it's where my mind goes. But as I think about this, and as Nehemiah lives this out, God is giving him strength and courage to persevere through this direct opposition. And God has given him the, the success for the task that God has given him. It's not Nehemiah's success. It's God's success in God's task. We jump into verse 10 of chapter 6, and, and now there's this next hurdle, right? This prophecy of Shemamiah. Shemamiah is this prophet who seems to have some regard in the community, that he is seen as a legitimate prophet. And Nehemiah goes and visits him, and, and he tells Nehemiah that there's a threat in his life, and he should go hide in the temple to be safe. And I love Nehemiah's response. Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? 
will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. Nehemiah responds in a way that lets Shemaiah know, and us, the readers today, know that this is a cowardly and sinful act. He's not going to do it. Nehemiah knows that only the priest can enter into the temple and, and, and dwell in there and can be in there. And he knows that those priests can only enter even at specified times in Scripture. And he knows this because he knows the Word of God. He spent time in the Word of God. Nehemiah knows that entering the temple wrongly can lead to death. So go back when you look at that and, and think about that. When he says, what man such as I could go into the temple and live... He's thinking, if I were to go in there, God could strike me dead. It's not a matter of, well, I can't go in there and put up an apartment. That's not how you do it. It's not a matter of that. It, it's, he has the fear of the Lord in him to know what God has said can happen. He has seen this from his reading of Scripture, specifically the book of Numbers and the book of Leviticus, and he knows this. Right? Nehemiah knows also that any true prophet of God would never say anything that contradicts the word of God. When you hear someone say to do something that the Bible does not say to do, you know that person is not of God. To know the will of God is to know His Word. The knowledge of Scripture allows for this discernment. Nehemiah had the ability to spot the false prophet, and we do too as long as we know the Word of God. We stay in the truth of the Word, we'll know this. What we see as we continue reading is that, that Shemaiah had, had been hired out by Sinballat to declare his false prophecy. The goal was to induce fear in Nehemiah. He took money to oppose God and God's work. Folks, Shemaiah here valued money more than God. This, this should be a tale of caution and woe to us. Guard your heart against this. See, because it really it appears that, that Shemaiah had at one point in time been a true prophet, a true man of God. But he allowed the world to sway him. Guard your heart. It's, it's not worth it. Guard your heart. He took this money to try to lure Nehemiah into sin so that he could defame Nehemiah publicly. The walls that Nehemiah are, are building, Nehemiah's building here aren't good walls just because they're good. Right? It's not a good task because it's just a good task. The walls Nehemiah is building are good because Jerusalem is God's city and God's name is at stake. If Shemaiah, through Tobiah and, and Sembala and Geshem, and these guys, if they can defame Nehemiah and the work he does, then that defames God. See, the work that you and I do isn't good work because it's good work. The work that you and I do, <clears throat> if we do it heartily, as for the Lord and not for man, that work is good because it's for God. Any reason someone would have to defame you and your work defames the name of Jesus Christ. Guard your heart and give no cause for this to happen. Again, <clears throat> Nehemiah sees the trick, and he returns to prayer. And this is the kind of prayer I never want to be on the receiving end of. Right? He says, remember Tobiah and Sambala, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. 
according to the things they did is the part that scares me a little bit. God, I'm turning these jerks over to you. Do with them as your holy justice seems fit. No one wants to be on the end of a prayer asking God to remember your sin and act accordingly to your unrepentant deeds. But this is what's happening here. It seems that Shemaiah was, was the prophet for hire whose story we hear about. Now that's what's interesting, because he mentions the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets. He just tells us the story of Shemaiah. There were other people who had been people of God, who had turned their back on God for the sake of money. And we only hear about Shemamiah. Right? There were others trying to intimidate and to scare Nehemiah and the rest of the Jewish people. And Nehemiah wants God to deal with him according to God's holy justice. That means Nehemiah wants God's mercy and grace on those who repent and turn back to God from their evil ways. But he wants justice for those who oppose God and his will. Folks, that's, we want to be guarding our hearts so that we're not on that kind of end of our prayer. But we also need to understand that, that when we see this kind of prayer in Scripture, we should desire the same. And we should desire that mercy and grace on those who repent and turn from God back, from, from evil back to God. That's a huge part of that prayer. We talked about this on Wednesday night in our small group as we were talking about the, the, it was the, the kind of chapter of the section we were talking about was so-and-so will never change. Right? That, that idea that there are people that just never change. And we talked about how that, that's a lie because the gospel is about making you a new creature in God. You're a new being in God. And so we talked about this idea though that when we take that idea of praying for those who have frustrated us or have wronged us, who have become an enemy or whatever we want to say. What if we prayed for God to ask, ask to bring them to repentance as we seek repentance for ourselves? Instead of saying, oh, that's just how so-and-so is, maybe we should pray, well, God, bring repentance into so-and-so's life as I repent of the things that has maybe made them distant from me. Pray in that way. And as we see Nehemiah walking in prayer, we should walk in prayer and have the strength and courage to, to persevere through the sneaky opposition that we see at work around us. There's a sneaky opposition to the work of God that comes in our lives. And we should, we should see that and continue to walk. Verse 15, we see a victory. The wall's finished. The people under Nehemiah's leadership and God's divine guidance have completed the wall in 52 days. When you think about this, they started this project in August and they finished it in October. That's miraculous. This is a public works project. I want to think about this a moment. This is a public works project. <clears throat> and a public works project that finishes this quickly, even with today's technology, even with today's equipment, would be a miracle. This was a public works project that happened in 450 B.C. That makes it even more miraculous that it happened this quickly. And the people around Jerusalem, those non-Jews, those Gentiles living in that area, they know it's a miracle. And they are intimidated and have lost some of their confidence 
because they know that God made this work happen in this manner, in this time frame. We should desire, church, we should desperately desire to be people who do things that only God's hand helps us get them done. We, we should want to be the people that people come up to say to us, how'd you all get that done? And our only answer should be just a shrug and with the help of our God, right? We, we should want there to be absolutely no reasonable earthly manner in which we as a church get things done. We should want our answer to always be the help of our God. How is it that you guys all as a church get along so well? The help of our God. How is it that, that so many people have been helped and blessed by your church? The help of our God. How is it that, that so many people have heard the gospel and there's so few people in your little congregation? The help of our God. We want to be the evidence of things that only God can do. It should be our heart and our desire. A couple of weeks ago, Chris gave us some great points to ponder as he was preaching through um, chapter 3 and 4. And he said, take time to track your efforts for God. Do hard things knowing that God will see them through. And when the, the hard things become harder, adapt. Know that God will see you through no matter what. He reminded us of these things. And what we see here is Nehemiah is setting an example for us to do just these things here in chapter 6. That God has given him the perseverance to see this project through with the people and, and to help them out. He, is, he has shown us how to do the hard things and adapt when they get harder. Right? Well, sword in one hand, trowel in the other. However you got to get this done, guys. The way Nehemiah relies on God through all of this opposition, that should be inspirational to us. We should ask God to grant us a Nehemiah-like faith. Right? I could conclude here. I could wrap this up now. But it would still be incomplete. Because just as we see the triumph of the walls being completed, what do we see? Tobiah. He rears up his ugly head, right? The nobles of, Judea, of Judah were exchanging intel back and forth between Tobiah the Ammonite. Now remember, the Ammonites were enemies of the Israelites. This is treachery that Nehemiah now has to deal with. And it appears that when Ezra, back in Ezra chapter 10, dealt with all that intermarriage just 13, 14 years ago, some of the nobles forgot about it. They missed that memo somehow. I don't know. Because Tobiah had married into a Jewish family and his kids had married into Jewish families. This meant that the Jews were speaking well of Tobiah and telling him everything Nehemiah had said. And the intimidation continued. I love it. It doesn't detour Nehemiah at all. It, it, it keeps him just more and more. He realizes he has another hard thing to do. He has to confront the sin of the people. And he cannot change his focus, right, from the wall to the hearts. He, he's, he's kind of moving in that direction. He's, he's going from, all right, the wall is done. We've rebuilt it. Now, again, we're going to need to rebuild the hearts of the people of Israel. And that's what chapter 7 is about. He says the city is large and it's spacious, but there's very few people living there. So who's going to populate the city? Well, they're going to only allow the people of God. And, and so Nehemiah goes back 
to, to what happened, right? So we think back, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, all of them, all three of these men who've brought waves of people back out of the exile, they're doing this because they know in their hearts they're building the kingdom of God here on earth. They're, they're building God's kingdom. And therefore, they seek to make Israel a holy nation. And Nehemiah wants to see the people purify themselves before the Lord. And in chapter 7, he pushes a reset button. Right? And the list of names in chapter 7 is almost identical to the list of names in Ezra chapter 2, when the people first returned from exile. The first step Nehemiah takes is, is to verify the true people of God so that Jerusalem can be purified. And the same is going to apply to the church today. We have to purify ourselves so that we can purify the church. We are, as a, as a church, as, as a whole body of believers, we are being called to repentance so that we can call others to repentance. We are called to repent so we can be a part of the kingdom of God so that we can call others to the kingdom of God. And before any of that can really happen, we've got to ask God to purify us. We've got to ask Him what we need to repent of. There may be things that we've, we've not thought about. We need to ask Him to weed out what's keeping us from Him. Chris asked the church a couple weeks ago to ask God what hard thing He wanted us to do. Hmm. I amen to that. I believe in that. I want us to continue to pray for wisdom in that. I want us to continue to ask God, what hard thing do we need to do as Calvary Heights Baptist Church? But we also need to pray that God would create in us as individuals a repentant heart so that we may be prepared to do the hard thing God wants us to do. Ask Him to give us repentant hearts so that we may persevere to see others saved. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the application that we can see here about knowing your word, sticking to it, purifying ourselves so that we can see your kingdom grow for your sake and for your glory. Father, I pray that as we enter into this time of response, you would do that. You would speak to our hearts in that way. Let us know how we as individuals and how maybe we as a body need to repent so that we can do a work that only you can do through us. For your name's sake, for your glory's sake.